It's my privilege to bring the word this morning, the preached word, and uh, as you're finding your way to Nehemiah 11 and 12, I'm going to begin. A couple years ago, I read uh, a book by Leo Tolstoy in one sitting, and no, it wasn't that big one. A book, a small book, uh, just 20 minutes to read, really small, called How Much Land Does a Man Need? And in its story is a Russian man named Pahom or Pahom and his family. And Pahom goes through great toil and struggle to move his family in order to buy food. And, and then becoming discontent with the land that he has, he, he continues to repeat this process. And the cycle of work and attainment and discontentment continues and over and over again, he, this kind of sees, becomes a cycle of his life. I think I shared this a number of years ago. So if you've heard it before, you're going to get uh, a rehash of it. Finally, one day in the story, though, he hears of a tribe that's selling land in the most unusual way. The, the tribal chief tells, tells him that this tribal sell land at the price of 1,000 rubles a day. And so when, when Pahom, Pahom, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, when he, when he finds out the explanation of these terms, the chief explains that for 1,000 rubles, a man can get land by covering as much ground as possible between sunrise and sunset to walk the land that he, that he more or less is going to buy. And all the covered ground would, would be his so long as he returned to the starting point before the sun went down. So he was delighted and could barely sleep the night before as he anticipated the hundreds and hundreds of acres that he was about to own for little money. And he, he thought to himself, what a large area I could mark off. I could easily go 35 miles in a day to just have this land, to, to have what I really want. So the next morning he sets out early and he covers much ground. The chief said, see all of this, as far as you can, I can reach, is, is yours. You may have any part of it you like. And so his eyes begin to glisten as he, as he walks out into this. And, and, and it, he included this bit of land and that bit of land as he walked through, urging himself along with the knowledge that the faster he moved, the more land he would have. Really encouraging himself, the more content he would be in life. And as the day wore on, he, he wore out. His appetite for more land seemed to decrease. And he could turn around sooner and people wouldn't think any less of him. But with every fiber of his being he, being, he continued to work to get every inch of land that he possibly could. And finally, he, he reaches the place from which he began just as the sun has begun to set. He, he made it. He's, he's, he's coming back to the starting point. And the tribe is gathered around him, cheering him on, exclaiming, as suddenly then he falls forward to the ground. And as he falls in exhaustion, the chief exclaims, what a fine fellow. He has gained so much land. And just then, the servant came running up to Pahom because he saw blood flowing from his mouth, and he wasn't moving, and he tried to move him and raise him up, but he found out that he was dead. Really encouraging story to start this morning. He found what he was looking for in this life. You know, really, it's a, it's a story of just never wanting enough, always wanting more. It's really a story of worship in some way. What he worshipped, it seems, was comfort, land, having just a little bit more of this earth. And, and really, this story is, is a story of all of us, really, as humans, right? 
When, when, when the chance to get uh, just a little bit more, we, we want to keep going. But will it satisfy? You know, this is the story of Israel, really. If they, if they look back, this is rehashed over and over. It's, it's in the story here in Nehemiah. It's in a lot of the Old Testament. They, they see God taking care of them step by step all the way. God continues to supply for them. And, and what do they do is they turn their back on God. They, they want to find their satisfaction in anything other than God, in the world, and what they desire here. And, and eventually, as we see in the story of God, it leads them into exile. But, but what we see in the book of Nehemiah as we've walked through this, this is a book of God's rescue of his people and bringing them back, restoring them into the city of God and, and to ultimately to worship. And, and it's been a fantastic book, really uh, in, encouraging to my heart. And so this, this morning through this sermon, we're going to step even closer to the end of this book. If you're, if you're taking notes, even if I changed the title, sorry, Kristen, I didn't tell you. I changed the title. It's to Restoring Worship, really. I had Restoring Leaders before, and there's part of that in here, but as I started diving in more into the book and really laying out my outline and main idea, it's really about restoring worship. So here's the main idea, and it, and it really is the two points as we walk through. So main idea is this. Filling the city with worshipers leads to filling the city with worship. Makes sense, right? Filling the city with worshipers leads to filling the city with worship. So those are the two points. Filling the city with worshipers, point one. Point two, filling the city with worship. And, and as we make our way, we're going to cover, Lord willing, chapters 11 and 12, which will leave chapter 13 for next week as we finish the book. So number, number one, point number one, filling the city with worshipers. And, and if you've read this already this week, praise the Lord, I, I again will not be um, venturing to uh, pronounce all these names. But they are significant, that's why it's here. So I'm, me not reading that, don't, don't take that into account like Jeff doesn't care about those names. I just don't want to torture you for 20 minutes. They are significant. Because this is really a record of people, especially 11 and 12, that gave of themselves, as we see, to move into the city. Most of the pity, uh, people, as, you, as we, we've gone through this book, were living outside the city, right? The, the walls were broken down. The temple wasn't really um, rebuilt until Ezra came. And so the temple was there, but the city was still in shambles, right? That's Nehemiah coming back to rebuild these walls. And, and so many were living outside of the city to, to live. Um, you, you can imagine that over the years of living outside the city, they developed a pattern of life to, to meet their needs. Farming the land and tilling the soil and sowing and reaping and gathering crops and feeding animals. <clears throat> and so they, they loved the suburban life. I mean, it became normal for them to have as much land as they, as they desire. And, and Jerusalem was not appealing to go back to. In fact, if you had young kids, it was unsafe because any enemy could come in and take and destroy and, and, and seek to damage in some ways. And so as, as you looked at the, the, the framework of the people living outside the city, it made sense to not live in Jerusalem. It made sense to live outside of the city to make a living. But now the, the temple has been rebuilt and, and beginning to function and the wall has been rebuilt. And, and there needed to be people living in the city for this to be a flourishing city yet again. Look at verse 1, chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. 
Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of 10 remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. It seems there at the very end too that that some voluntarily chose to move into the city and and then there were those who, who were chosen essentially to move to the city by casting lots. Now, casting lots was not something foreign to Jews at this time. So it wouldn't have been considered odd. But casting lots, um, it was important, I believe, from Nehemiah, especially in the time frame, time frame of this, when the, when the word was written or understood, it, it was not Nehemiah forcing the people. It was essentially the will of God bringing this about. But the question is, and I'm sure it's a normal question, all right, so we read in Nehemiah here that they cast lots. So should we make decisions in our life by casting lots? And my quick answer is no, we shouldn't. We are blessed with greater spiritual privilege and resources that they had in the Old Testament. Who indwells Christians? The Holy Spirit. We have God himself indwelling us. He is there to guide us and to teach us and to lead us. And part of that is to make decisions that honor and glorify him. So I don't think we need to rely on casting lots to discern God's will. Instead, we rely on God who indwells us to discern God's will. Furthermore, we have God's word completed for us. They didn't have that, which gives us insight and direction. Furthermore, we have other Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who also have God's word for themselves. And so my answer to you is no, you shouldn't cast lots. You shouldn't throw your fleece out on the grass to see if it gets wet. No, you should lean into God's word and through prayer and wisdom from other spirit indwelt Christians for direction and guidance. If you want more conversation about that, let me know. That's my quick answer. The second half of that verse is, is those that, that weren't cast by lots, but those who voluntarily left. They voluntarily left their home to, to go into the city. And, and what's the response for the people? They, they, they blessed them. These people were willingly giving them themselves to leave the land, to leave the comfort, to leave how life has been, to move into the city. And, and essentially, they're putting God's program above their individual desires. See, moving to the city would be less advantage for them at this time. But they realized what was happening, it seems. And see, at this point in, in, in human history, God was pursuing his program in the, word, in the world through a holy city. Jerusalem was God's holy city. And, and God had promised all the way back in chapter one, verse nine, that he was seeking to make his name dwell there in Jerusalem. So this was not gonna be some ordinary city. See, to live in the city meant they were given the opportunity to serve God in a holy place. And that would be an immense privilege and honor for them. But it would require sacrifice. It would require giving up some things. And as we see, not many desired to do that. If the holy city, though, was left unpopulated, the continuing vitality of the temple that stood at its center would decline, and then worship would be would be deteriorated in some ways. So there was a redemptive need to ensure that the city would flourish and be strong again. And it required believers. 
require them moving there. You know, I begin to wonder how many of us would be willing to sacrifice our homes and the comfort to serve God where he's working. And you might think, if you've been here long enough, this is where Jeff talks about becoming a missionary and moving to a foreign land. And yes, to a certain extent, that's true. God is still, praise the Lord, raising up Christians to leave the comforts of their home here and to serve him in far-off countries. And we need more to sacrifice the good life, to give of themselves to serve God. My challenge to you is if, if you cannot do that here while living in America, then you most likely not be able to do it in a foreign country. It's like raising up missionaries who have never shared the gospel with someone and they want to go to a foreign land. Well, we need to see that demonstrated here. Before, as elders, we would want to confirm that and, and, and say, yes, you should go to a foreign country. Well, the same is, is really living in a way right here for the glory of God, willing to forsake some comforts for serving him. We need more Christians right now here in America who are willing to live sacrificial lives for the glory of God. If, so if Jerusalem was God's city then, God's holy city, where, where he, he dwelt with God's people, then where is he dwelling today? It's the church, right? And us. So where should we look to give of ourselves now? It's in the church with the people of God. See, in this, in this chapter here and with this section is they, they, they saw a great need to leave their comfort to come and live in God's holy city for his glory alone, to live for someone else other than themselves. And, and do we see that same need right now? See, the church, where, where God dwells with us, is needed more servants who are willing to give of themselves for others so that God's word and the gospel will be proclaimed in all the earth. We, we would love to be a church that sends out people to the mission field, to unreached people groups, but it really it starts here. It starts with us within the church in the community and serving the church. And so I ask, where are you serving right now, friends? If you're new to our church, you're not a member, you're just visiting, you can just sit patiently for a second and you're off the hook, okay? But if you've been here and you're a member of this church, that question applies. Where are you serving right now? Where are you giving of yourself? That, that's, that's part of what it means to be the church, to be a committed member, is to give of yourself to the local church. And, and there are many ways to give of yourself to the church. From greeting on Sundays, Rebecca, you could use more greeters, right? Correct answer. To working in the nursery, I know we need more people working in there children's church, teaching kids, mowing grass, making peanut butter sandwiches for those less fortunate on Saturdays. There's opportunity for us to, to serve, to give of ourselves to God's people. So who should we bless then? If, if they're blessing those that gave of themselves in verse 2, who willingly left the, the comfort, uh, the the, the, the possibility just to be about themselves and to give of others, who should we bless here in our church family? Who is it those that we should bless? It's probably those that clean up after the potluck meals, right? 
who watch children during the worship service so that parents can actually focus during the time of worship. It's, it's those who take out time of their week to visit elderly people who can't get out, who, who miss time of fellowship with others. It's those usually that are working behind the scenes that are not looking for any recognition. They just want to give of themselves. Those are the people that we bless. These people are the ones that set aside what they could like doing for themselves to do what's most needed. And yet there's still more for us to do. See, these worshipers that fill the city, those that sacrifice their lives in comfort, they do it for the glory of God. They do it for, for his fame so that he would be recognized in that, in that area. And these people were prepared to change their existence entirely for his glory and it affected themselves and their families. But they saw that it was more important to obey God than making a comfortable future for themselves. See, the glory of God and the spread of his fame was more important. And so in verses 3 through 24 is really a listing out of these people. These are the people that, that moved into Jerusalem. The chiefs of the province, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants. This lists all of these people out. This is somewhat of a, a memorial of those that are to be honored, those that are blessed. And, and, and then it, it lists there the sons of Judah and Benjamin, sons of Perez, and there are 468 valiant men, it says there in the, in the passage. Men of valor and mighty men of valor. Those are listed in verses 8 through 14. And, and what, do make, what make these people valiant? It's, it's really their willingness to risk their lives. Again, it was, it was risky. It was risky to move into the city, right? Some of you would rather do anything else in this world than move into a city. For maybe va very valid reasons, I understand that. And so think that way. It was a risk for them in some ways, even to, to move there with young kids but they were willing to risk their lives for the kingdom of God, for his glory. They were courageous to live in the city and give up comfort. So do you want to be valiant? It's to live for God. I'm not saying we all should sell our homes and move to the city. That's, if you're getting that out of this, I'm really sorry, I'm, I'm communicating poorly. No, it's, it's giving of ourselves for God and for his glory, to lay down our rights, to live for him. That's heroism. That's, that's courage. And, and, and to do it, whether or not your name is listed like these names later. Most people are, are, are willing to die for what they believe, but not all people are willing to die to themselves for what they believe. And we should strive for that. With Christ's help, we should strive to live that way. That we would desire to give of ourselves for the glory of God. That's what worship looks like for a Christian. So, point one, once the city is filled with worshipers, the next step then is in inevitable, right? The, the, the city is filled with worshipers, what will happen? The city will be filled with worship. Jump down to 24 there in chapter 11. And the chief of the Levites, Hashabiah, Sherebiah, and Jeshua, the son of Kadamiel, with their brothers who stood opposite them, to praise and to give thanks according to the commandment of David, the man of God, watch by watch. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing. 
with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages. Then jumped to 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So what we're reading in this section here, did I give you the wrong verses there? We're in chapter 24, sorry. Or chapter 12. Whew. If you're looking for chapter 24, it's not there. (laughs) Chapter 12, that was verses 24, sorry about that. And then through 30. And this is really the, the, the second main half of these two chapters. First was the, the, the worshipers going into the city. The second half is, is the worship that happens in the city. But there's, there's two things that stand out in chapter 12 of what the people did and what preparation. The first is the preparation. The second is really what, what happened. And so you, you maybe caught that in verse 30. And the priests and the Levites, this is chapter 12, verse 30, purified themselves and they purified the people and the gates in the wall. So so they're dedicating the wall, again, a recognition of what God has done in their midst. And, and the first thing they do is a purification. And, and we can learn something from that. So no matter how much skill there is for, who, for those that are leading in worship, no matter how much passion they have for those that play instruments, if, if hearts are not right with the Lord, it's all for nothing. See, the hearts of those in worship are more important than the voices of worship. And we learn from the Bible that God is not moved by lofty words or captivated with clever tunes. He's more interested in the hearts of those that worship him. And the greatest obstacle in our worship is sin. And so Nehemiah doesn't provide for us what was required for the purification, just that it happened. And the the ritual of purification points to the fact that our hearts are spiritually unfit for the worship of God all by ourselves. Psalm 24 says, the one who may enter God's presence has clean hands and a pure heart. And so the only way that we can enter in the presence of God today is through the union of Jesus Christ. We heard that earlier in our time of singing. Only through faith alone in Jesus Christ can our sins be washed away from his atoning death on the cross. And in Christ, we are made new. We are washed whiter than snow. But how often can we be confused about this? You remember in the Gospels, Jesus faced many religious people who pursued cleaning themselves and were ultimately more concerned with outward cleaning than the inward. Jesus spoke very harshly with the Pharisees in the Gospels. Remember, he, he said the, the outside of the cup and the dish is clean while the inward are full of greed and self-indulgence. And so we're, we're trying to, to fight against this a little bit here in our gathered time of worship just, just recently by including a time of confession in our worship gatherings. To, to, for all of us to spend a moment and, and to, to look at our own hearts that we would be serious about our sin. So God looks within to the deepest part of our hearts and minds. And he knows whether our words on our lips is matched with the quality that he sees in our hearts. And so it would be right for us to think about going to worship ahead of time. 
and spending time with God before we actually get to worship. How often do we spend time on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings thinking through our sins, confessing sins, just even for a brief moment, for a few minutes before coming to worship? Or is your house somewhat like my house some Sundays where we're just trying to get kids out the door alive? Because we might, never mind. And sometimes there's grogginess and we're a little late and we're rushed and we want to be there, but yet we're, we're just kind of falling into Sunday worship. I didn't invent this phrase, I've taken it from someone else, but Sunday morning worship is a Saturday night decision. And I think we forget about that. That really is the day before. It really is thinking through what's going to happen the next day. And a lot of you do this during the week, right? If you work a job or if you're planning those sort of things, you think ahead. And what's any different on Sunday morning? Why is it that we don't think carefully about it? You know, as a family, we seldom do much on Saturday evenings. So if you invite us over for something on a Saturday night, we're probably going to say no. And it's not because we don't like you. We just seldom do this. And part of that is for me. My mind is already somewhere else. But maybe you might look at that in your life. I'm not telling you that's the most holy thing to do. But looking at Saturdays as a preparation for Sundays. And and in some ways, not because you're trying to earn favor with God. You're not trying to manually or spiritually in yourself purify yourself. Because as Christians, you recognize, again, we're not the ones that make ourselves pure. God does that. But it's a preparation for worship. It's a preparation for singing. So what, what needs to change in your week so that we can come better prepared on Sundays? So that we can start at 1030 and not 1035. There might be something there. So purification was part of it. And then they begin to sing. That's the second half. Verse 31. And I'm going to jump down in some verses here, so hopefully I won't lose you again. Chapter 12, verse 31. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up unto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south of the wall, to the dung gate, and one went to the north. But verse 36. They came with musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went straight up before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. And the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north and followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yashana and by the fish gate and the tower of Hanel and the tower of Hundred to the sheep gate and then came to the halt of the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half the officials with me, and priests, and with trumpets. And then verse 42, and the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. Now I jumped around a little bit there, but I'm trying to paint the picture of this is what it looked like in worship, okay? And, and, and according to Nehemiah's account here, the main function of these services was given to choirs and instrumentalists. It was essentially to be filled with singing. That's what this dedication service looks like. And what did they sing? They probably sang the Psalms. Uh, most likely they would sing the songs of ascent from Psalm 120 and 134. We went through those, through those in equipping class a year, year and a half ago. Uh, 
Or they, they sang Psalm 78 or 105 or 106. Either way, they, they would sing and praise for what God had accomplished in their midst with the rebuilding of the city. Singing has always been a striking feature of the worship of God's people. Have you thought much about this? It is not true in other religions. Have you ever gone to other churches or other world religious churches, you know, the big ones, and noticed that singing is much different? And in fact, some other religions don't have singing at all. They have chanting. And some, only the clergy sing. Everyone else just has to listen. But usually in those services, they're very grim and solemn occasions. There's not joy. But not Christians. No, we're weird in a good way. We sing, and we sing out every week. We gather to express our joy and thanksgiving to God every Sunday. Christians write hymns, and we sing them in our worship gatherings. We write choruses. We continue to do that. It's still happening. And why do we sing? Have you thought about that? Why do we sing? Because we're thankful. Christians are joyous people. And our services, our services are a response to the great acts of God on our behalf, particularly to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the main thrust of our service. And so we gather as a church to sing, to sing about our God. We sing today. It is well with my soul when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So that kind of mixes both in that song, right? The, the sorrow and the pain, and yet what, what do we say? That it's well, God. We praise you in this. It's really a song of thankfulness, remembering that even in our suffering, God is there, he leads us, and he comforts us. You know what's even more strange about Christians? Maybe you're new to Christianity. You're welcome here, by the way, but we sing at funerals. Have you ever been to a funeral full of non-Christians? I have. It's, that's weird to me. There's no singing. You know, the world finds it strange when they come. I mean, how can Christians sing when they're remembering a loved one that died? Because we know where they're at. And so we sing in response to the grace of God in securing the salvation of that loved one. See, the best singing comes from a heart that is thankful and rejoicing in what God has done. And so if you come here regularly to our services and you never sing, you might want to ask yourself, why? Why don't I sing? If you're a young man looking to, to marry a girl someday, and she's looking for a godly man, and you don't sing, I'm going to encourage her to not date you. Because Christians sing. If you're worried that it doesn't look cool, get over it. 
Christians sing in response of thankfulness. Christians, they give of themselves in singing of thankful hearts. They can't stop themselves. And so if you don't sing, it might be a sign of what's going on in your heart or what hasn't happened in your heart yet. Perhaps it's a sign that you just don't know the Lord yet. And that's, a, that's an indicator for you to think through and ask questions deeply about. Thankful Christians are great at singing. And I listened this morning. Boy, we're good at singing. You ever do that? I know some of you have told me, you know, just pause singing. It's okay. You can stop for a second and look around. Especially looking around at people that you know who have struggled this week or in the last month who are in the midst of suffering and trials and they are singing in response to their God. It, it ministers to you. And I've said it before, this is why our, our seats are curved, okay? It's on purpose so that you can sing to one another and look at one another. It's okay, all right? It's okay to do that. I'm giving you permission. Don't stare at a long time, but look at one another and sing to one another. And what do we sing about? God's goodness to us. Our building should be the loudest building in Edgewood on Sunday mornings because our building should be filled with thankful Christians who are singing back to God of his wonderful gifts to us. Does this sound strange to you, little friend? Maybe you've been here for a while and you come in and it's like, man, this is weird. You didn't grow up in this. There's nothing quite like it. Our church is is full of singing and prayer and of adoration of God. And and that may seem weird or strange. You need to understand we don't do this to earn anything from God. We're not not trying to satisfy Him some way or to appease Him. No, we do this to give back to God all glory and praise for all that He's done for us and what He continues to do for us. Perhaps Christianity and the church is just brand new to you. And the truth of this world, though, is that you all worship something. Maybe not sing like that, but you worship something. We're all made to worship. The question is, friend, are you worshiping God? Do you have any reason to right now? Well, friends, if you've turned from your sins and are trusting in Him alone, you have reasons to sing, reasons to worship. But if you're still running from God, rejecting His offer of salvation, just happy with your life, then you probably won't want to sing. You wouldn't want to worship. See, these people in chapter 12 are worshiping God because God had rescued them. And and for us as the church, every Sunday we worship because because we recognize and we remember and we, we go over it again that God has rescued us through Jesus Christ. And every single one of us was once lost. 
confused, trying and striving on our own until God stepped in to rescue us, giving us faith to believe in Him, to trust in Him, and to turn from ourselves and to turn to Him in faith. And so the question is, friend, have you done that? Have you repented of your sins, of relinquishing control of your life and trusting in Him alone? I pray that you will do that, friend. I've been praying for you. Perhaps I don't know you by name, but I've been praying for you. I know there's others in this room that pray for you. In fact, they're probably praying for you right now. And we pray that you would turn from your sins. And that we would love to reach out and talk, to have questions and and talk more about it. I would love to spend my afternoon doing that today. But you can pray even right now that God would save you to rescue you. See, the act of prayer is a confession that we don't have it all together. The the very act of prayer is saying, God, we need help. And we're testifying that God needs to step in because we can't do it on our own. So I pray that that God would use this time in his word to affect you, that you would reach out. Well, as we read, and as we read in verse 31, the wall... I don't know if you skipped over this, but the wall is large enough, wide enough, for the, for the people to get up on it and stand and march around the city. Do you remember, if you were here back in chapter 4, what the taunts were by the enemies of God? Do you remember that? Tobiah in particular, do you remember what he said? If a fox climbed up on what you're building, it would break down the stone wall. That's what he said right, as a taunt to stop them from building the wall. Like, your work that you're doing is not going to be strong enough. I guess he's wrong. And I wonder if, I don't know this, doesn't say it, but I wonder if the reason why they climbed up on the wall and marched around to celebrate was to show them what God had done because of that comment from Tobiah in chapter 4. I mean, it makes sense, right? The enemy's of God could see clearly that God had allowed them to complete the wall, and now they were standing upon it very securely, marching around in worship. That would have been a testimony of God's goodness to them and his strength and his might. And then verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Do you notice how many times the word joy is in that verse? The repetition of the words joy and rejoice shows that God had worked in their lives and had given them joy and caused rejoicing. The, the, the joy was spiritual. The sacrifices offered and the songs sung were expressing the joy, a joy that originated with God. He is the giver of joy. And gratitude to God and what he's done leads to joy. And God was the one who gave them joy to rejoice in all they had done for them in the city. And, and when we serve God, when we give of ourselves to serve him and the church, God gives us joy. And when God gives us joy, it's displayed, displayed and heard and seen as evidence and testimony of God's greatness. And, and it says there in verse 43, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard from far away. That's a fascinating sentence, isn't it? They're up on the walls, marching around the city, singing, playing instruments, and the people could hear it. They're essentially saying, everyone can hear this. 
Sometimes we read verses like this, though, and we want to somehow remanufacture this on our own. And if that's your goal, it will fail. This is, again, something that God did. This joy was from the Lord. This was not something that we can manufacture. So even so, even when we read this, we need to be careful not to say, all right, we want to annoy all of our neighbors on Sunday by singing so loud they just can't help you. If that's our, our goal, then we've missed the point. That's not the stated goal. We should sing in response. That's the point, is that God would hear our worship and that our hearts are focused on him and not so much to somehow impact others. Well, verse 44, we're almost done to the end here. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification as they did singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of singers and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Both in David's time and Nehemiah's, there was a meticulous order to, that they put into the worship gathering. And so everything was thought through, everything was accounted for, every, every act, every role, and people gave in response to that. And reading this passage again for me this week reminds me again of the, the importance to have an orderly worship, a liturgy. You know, we desire everything we do here on Sunday that it should be thought through, that, it, that it, we're not just going through the motions. And so we, we set aside, you've set aside time today to worship, and so we want to be deliberate in all that we do when we gather for worship. And, and so from this passage, from the passages that we read and from understanding God's word and to the songs that we sing and to the prayers that lead God's people, all the way to the word that is preached, we're, we're attempting to be careful and serious and joyful all at the same time so that God receive the glory. The last thing I want you to notice here before we we end and conclude is, did you notice at the end of verse 44, the people rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who considered, who they considered to be provision of leadership and service for them. And I just wonder, church, do you view the spiritual leaders that God has given you the same way? Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we obey leaders as they obey Christ and as the Word of God. And we submit to leaders, we submit to their teaching as they teach the Word of God. And why do we do this? The verse says, because they're keeping watch over your souls. So when God gives elders to a church, they're a gift. He's gifting that church with leaders who will someday stand before God and give an account for every soul that's entrusted to them. And so the right response from Hebrews here to godly leadership is to be a, is to be a faithful member whose job is to bring joy to their leaders. And why should we do this? Because it's of no advantage to you to do the opposite. Meaning, it would be no advantage to you to continue to make it hard on your leaders. 
That doesn't mean you can't disagree with them or joke around. I'm not saying that. It just means we rejoice in the leadership that God has given because God is the one that's given it. And it helps the church flourish and grow. All right, let's end here. The city has been filled with worshipers, and the city has been filled with worship. Restoration and reconciliation between God and man is something that we sing about and we should sing about. That's what we see in chapter 12. That's the hope of the gospel, friend. Man and God reconciled, rescuing us, and that we'd worship him forever. But the temptation to find our joy in things of earth is strong. You remember the story at the very beginning there? Pahom in his pursuit of having more, he was, he was tempted through a conversation, the discontentment with some of the worldly circumstances. So essentially he thought he could just get all that he wanted here on earth. And after he marches all day to secure the land, he reaches right where he began and he steps away from getting all that he wanted and what happened? He died. He died in his pursuit. And the story ends very helpful for us. It says that Pahom's servants picked up the spade that he used to designate his land and dug a grave long enough for his body to lie in for eternity and buried him in it. All the land that he got was six feet from his head to his heels. Essentially, it's all he needed. That's all the land he needed when his life was over. It seems like he lived with only one life in view. What do you think your life will look like from eternity? You ever thought about that? You know, how easily satisfied this man was in gaining something that could so easily be taken away. And how easily are we like him in our lives? That in the pursuit of things that maybe aren't necessarily sinful here on earth, we forego worship and service to others. And we essentially live only for this world and not for the one to come. See, friend, God in his goodness and grace brought you here this morning to sit with God's people for worship, to sit under his word being declared and read and preached. And he brought us here to, to worship, to sing. See, when the people worship, they march around the city. I wonder if one of the psalms they sang was Psalm 126, verses 1 through 3. It says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. I wonder if that's what they sing. That's what we should sing. In fact, we're going to end by singing. It's a good idea, right? We're going to sing a song that is relatively new. We've sang it a number of times. We will feast in the house of Zion. It's a new hymn. It's been written the last few years, but it reminds us of the abundant joy that awaits us, those that place their hope in God. And the repeated refrain celebrates the ultimate fulfillment of our faith. 
where we will dwell in the house all the days of our lives, and we will feast on the fullness of Jesus Christ forever and ever with fully restored hearts. And so this song should propel us forward, looking for that day, that day when we're reunited. And this song, in this way, gives us a glimpse of what God already sees, the final resolution of all things. And so that day is coming, friends, and we ask, Lord, come quickly. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. Father, we thank you for your word that washes us and renews us and guides us and gives us hope and encouragement. God, we thank you that you have not left us to fend for ourselves, but you give us yourself to live within us. So we ask that you would give us a greater vision of you, of what you're doing in this world, that we would understand you and that we would serve you, and that you would give us strength and grace to give all that we have on this earth for your honor and glory alone until you take us home. And we do pray, Lord, come quickly. For we ask this all in Christ's magnificent name, amen.